0: Hello, and welcome to Port 443. Uh, Today we had our first ever episode and in a a pretty exciting fashion with uh, the first ever Chief Software Officer of the United States Air Force, Nicholas Challen. Uh, He also supports uh, the Department of Defense and overall building out DevSecOps practices for the United States government. Uh, We cover how the U.S. government is securing open source technologies instilling uh, best practices and also giving back to the open source community, also covered uh, the value for Kubernetes in the U.S. government, where service mesh fits into that, Um, and why Kubernetes is pertinent for, say, a nuclear missile silo. Uh, Overall, uh, great episode, a good way to kick off this podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy well, what up, man? Appreciate you making the time for me today. I know you're you're quite a busy man.
1: I am, unfortunately for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I so I mean I'd love to get your perspective on Kubernetes. Get your perspective on you know where the the government as a whole is going towards you know uh, modernizing application infrastructure. Uh, but I think a, a really interesting. Segment of this should be, you know, h- how you came to be and, and you know, <laughs> what what led you to be in the place of being the first chief software officer of the Air Force.
1: Yeah. In fact, I'm actually the first in the entire government, funny enough.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's not a single branch with another chief security or uh, software officer?
1: It's after, no, not, not even outside of DOD. So, not even, you know, DHS. Or, so, yeah, I'm the first the first hopefully not the last
0: (laughs) so so what does that mean though so what is I mean being the first you know where did this come from uh why did why did it why was this role created and then I, I think another thing I was really curious on is is how far that influence stretches is it the air force and I know you've done work with FEMA in the past and and obviously you're still working with the DOD so you know how how far does that that uh, title stretch in the government? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think there are a couple of things, right? One is, where, you know, I, I think it came to be because we realized we needed uh, uh, a real focus on, on, on DevSecOps and, and software. And, you know, I didn't like the title too much at first because obviously I wanna bring uh, the same uh, practices at the commercial side, right? And you don't have a chief software officer on the commercial side either, right? And so I was like, I yep. don't know if we should really create a new title Um, But taking a step back now, uh, I realize how complex it is to bring enterprise services and bring DevSecOps and Kubernetes and containers and all that stuff at scale. And so I I do see the value of having a central point of contact and central office to help remove impediments to the adoption of DevSecOps. But at the same time, you know, uh, it goes hand in hand with cloud and IT and enterprise IT and the CIO's job. Uh, and so it, it's interesting how, you know, in the government, particularly, we have a lot of silos and, and vacuums. And, and it, so it's, it's very difficult to bring enterprise services, uh, particularly, you know, something that's built with the company mindset. What I mean by that is, you know, a, a service that has uh, customers and, and not something that's mandated you know, for the sake of, of mandate. Um, mm-hmm. So we, you know, we designed platform one uh, to become that office of. Uh, DevSecOps for for DoD, and it it is a DoD-wide initiative, so that's not just for the Air Force. Uh, So we can centrally assess software, accredit containers, we can um, centrally harden and provide DevSecOps enclaves with a complete automation, GitOps deployments, so so we're really bringing the enterprise scale stuff. So teams, application teams, development teams uh, across DoD, and we have the largest organization on the planet, Can just focus on on doing what they should be doing, which is building their their mission software, not worry about cloud or infrastructure or platform or service meshes and stuff like that and just you know completely uh, spend their their valuable time on on building the actual capability itself.
0: So, and I think that's. That that vision is the end goal for every enterprise today, right? And <laughs> enabling, you know, like Platform One, having the self-service model where you have all these siloed groups, uniformity, um, and having a central access to infrastructure without having to be familiar with it and focusing on why that application is doing what it's doing, not how and how to get it facing to the internet or end user. The, the one thing you mentioned that I'm I want to drill down on a little bit is the hardening process. Um, that's one thing that I think is you know, you've got access to that a lot of people on the, you know, on the, the private side or, or you know, the, the enterprise side is not actually uh, privy to. Is this all coming from the work at EC Council or, or how do you guys actually do this uh, at scale? Because I, I know you're running a ton of open source technology and, and you know, in, in my background working with companies like financial services and healthcare, they're pretty strict about open source, but you've kind of taken a different approach.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, you know, we, we really created the entire stack based on open source software. So when you start using, you know, Kubernetes and it's all Linux based and, and you start using containers and and all the, the fancy tools that go alongside of, uh, uh, of Kubernetes with, you know, Istio and, and, and other tools, you, you end up really, relying on, on, on open source, And it doesn't just mean you trust it b- blindly, right? Um, there's two pieces uh, for the DevSecOps, uh, sec, the sec side of DevSecOps, There are the the pipeline scanning where we do the, the basic traditional, you know, scanning of software, whether it's using static dynamic analysis, container security scanning, whether it's using bit of material, looking at dependencies of dependencies, and see the threat and the risk within these dependencies um, and looking at insider threat, right, from these upstream projects and see who is committing code and having eyes on code as well. Uh, Although, you know, it is difficult to keep up with the pace of open source, right? So you can't just have, you know, people reviewing every code change on the planet. So, Mm -hmm. but but having eyes on code on the critical projects is certainly very important as well. Uh, So we do that as well, but then you have the runtime piece, which is really the continuous monitoring piece, behavior detection, looking at drift, looking at um, uh, enforcing zero trust. So container A can only talk to B and not to C and D. So reducing your attack surface if someone gets into the, 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 the stack. And, and so you mitigate the risk, right? By having layers of security and, and layers of detection and, and proactive um, detection, uh, particularly on the behavior side with complete automation. And so that's really where uh, we, we spent a lot of time. And then we, we centrally assess and scan and receive updates from both commercial companies and up, upstream open up, up, up source projects. So we centrally uh, scan, harden, rebuild, um, sign uh, containers. So then we created the iron bank, which is the, uh, the DoD kind of Docker hub, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know I would say much more stringent and and a smaller set setup. I mean, we only have 200 plus containers right now, uh, but they all you know, really assessed, scanned. We look at CVEs. We look at findings. Um, if there's a new CVE, you know, during an update, that's going to trigger some manual review. If there's no new CVE, we we just self-update uh, the stack and we replicate that repo on the classified environments. So within four hours you know, we can have all the continuous update flow fl- flowing across DoD. And that's game changing because now you're not focusing on, you know, patch management and vulnerability management. The teams can just use latest, latest bits, you know, as needed. So that's really, uh, that's exciting to see because um, we get also to push back, you know, code uh, based on the findings we we find. We, we op- you know, we push back upstream uh, fixes. Uh, so, so everybody gets, uh, better, stronger together. Um, and that's been, uh, you know, we, we, pa- we patch complex um, upstream projects now in, in, you know, for over a year uh, when it comes to the big ones, you know, whether it's uh, Kubernetes, Istio, Envoy, you know, uh, we, we find stuff and then we have companies, right. That we partner with uh, push that could back upstream.
0: So the, the, the companies you partner with, are, is this like a, kind of like a, Aqua, Twistlock, um, Stackrocks, like from the hardening perspective.
1: Yeah, so we well, so for the scanning piece, uh, but of course we also have a lot of uh, service company that, that do the development and put you know patching and stuff like that. But yeah, we use Stackrocks, we use, Stack Rocks, we use um, Twistlock, we use Anchor, um, and then of course we use the traditional you know SonarCube, Checkmarks, uh, uh, you know Nexus Lifecycle, Black Duck, um, Fortify, right. For the, for the code piece of this. But yeah, we, we have a very big uh, mandate to have two scanners, right? Because we find a lot, a lot of disparity between the scan results on containers. Really? Yeah, yeah, if you look at uh, TwistLock and Anchor. Um, and and the, the good thing is, on the Iron Bank, we, we share the, the scan results. So you can go there and it's open source. So we, we open it to the world. So anyone can use the DoD version of these containers. I, I really think that's exciting. We see you know, dozens of financial institutions, uh, healthcare organizations, um, other countries. Um, 12 federal agencies outside of DOD using the containers and then they can take it and run. I mean, of course, if it's a commercial product, they have to buy the license of it. But the container itself is ready to go already hardened and secure. And, and look, we're not saying the container is perfect and it's a two way street. Right. If people say, hey, you know, we can uh, make a tweak and, and make it better let's push the code back to uh, my repo called repo1. That's the source code repo of everything we do. Repo1 is where we get the, the, the code change that will trigger the pipeline, the scanning, the signing, and then it goes to iron bank as a binary for consumption. And, and so it's open to the world. So anyone can go and see the, the scan results, the justifications that we put, you know, if, we, if we felt you know, risk was uh, mitigated, or if we felt you know, maybe it was a false positive or may, maybe it's just something we have to accept and maybe we accept with conditions, for example, some tools were like, well, you know, the the finding is too critical. We cannot have this intended facing, right? You have to be behind the zero trust uh, stack or uh, VPN or internal network. You cannot make that tool intent facing. It's just too risky, too many findings, right? So we said that, right? And then people can decide what they want to do. But I think it's Really streamlining the assessment and the updating. What's more exciting also is the updating piece, right? We we mandate companies to push their updates in real time to the Iron Bank, so so it's not behind in, in a matter of days, right? Uh, in releases, so so you get latest bets the same day.
0: So I, uh, the previous company I was at was NGINX. Would that be a tool that would be in this Iron we Bank? We have
1: it. <laughs> We have it right now. <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and is that what, what I'm curious is, is, is that the open source binary? Is that the Nginx plus both. binary? Okay. We have both. Yeah, so what we
1: mandate from companies, because I'm a sneaky guy, I mandate that <laughs> the commercial companies that want to put their commercial products, they also have to put the up, upstream up, open source version. So that way uh, they're not just pushing the commercial bits. It's not their best interest, but it's the government and the taxpayer best interest. So um you know if they want to sell they also have to bring the, the upstream up open source bits so that's the same thing for elastic or you know i mean you name it uh, any any company like gitlab or uh whatever right any company that has both a, a free version and a paid version they have to put both
0: now how how does this work for and and this could be just me not being familiar with with this layer of open source but how does it work with a company uh that has no enterprise offering and it's a pure open source uh community that ha- doesn't have a business behind it yep we call
1: it uh, i guess it's what what is it costs uh, a commercial open source software uh that's a new new term uh there's a whole conference now about costs it's exciting work <laughs> being done um we have contract vehicles right so part of the DevSecOps initiative is we have uh, contract vehicles where startups and companies can become you know a, a vendor and so if they let's say they have a, a service or they provide support uh people from my teams can uh, or any any of the DoD teams can go and buy that 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 service so they can just consume the open source bits and then get the support and now you have uh, you know the cost cost version i guess of, of the tool
0: so basically you'd have uh, like a business that kind of forms around an open source community, not necessarily the the core contributors, right. but somebody who says, I'll support it.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean it could be both, right? They could be also hmm. obviously supporting the. Uh, I mean, it's better obviously if they have a deep involvement in yep. the in the project. But I mean, look, you know, um, obviously at some point you cannot just be supporting stuff and not have the contributor back to fix stuff. It's just a little bit uh, shady. Uh, I'm not yep. sure what really you can do to fix stuff if there is a real problem because it's not just about updating and supporting. It's how do you fix when you find issues, right? If you cannot uh, push code back, I'm not sure you bring a lot of value to uh, to the customer. Uh, but regardless for us I mean we bring everybody in the, the goal right for any and that's a beauty right any company that has a container that you know does something cool can push it uh, to the iron bank tomorrow right mm-hmm. and that can be approved within two to four weeks very minimal uh, investment in fact we provide the base image of the OS for the container uh, that is already STIG and passing and stig is a DoD uh, hardening of the os so we provide that that uh, ubi right? it's the rel 7 and 8 image and then we have distro less and, and other options but that by taking that as a company and using it as a base image and replacing your base image you, you're automatically passing the os requirements for fips and all this stuff you don't want to be <laughs> dealing with for crypto and all that kind of stuff and so mm-hmm. we, we provide that base image, you, you give back to us the, the, the Docker file, we build it. We, we don't need the source code of, of your applications. We just need the, the, the Docker file. We rebuild, we scan, and then you're credited within two to four weeks. And then you have access to the entire DoD, right? The largest customer on the planet. But, but like I said, Iron Bank is beyond that now. I mean, it's becoming uh, the federal container registry and, and even companies are using the container. So I think it's, a, it's becoming a marketplace, right? where people can yeah. put their their software. And so it's, it's a great way for startups, right, to, to get started with DoD without having to invest massively into uh, FedRAMP and all the other stuff that, that DoD and the, the federal agencies are, are doing, which often takes a year and, and you know, uh, half a million or a million bucks of investment from the companies to, uh, to be accredited. Uh, for us, it's two to four weeks and you are created DoD wide all the way to the highest classification level. So your container can end up running on top secret and above, you know, uh, classifications, which is really where the real meat and data is, and that's where you can really make money because, um you know, companies that are stuck unclassified can really do ten percent of duties is unclassified. Mm. Right? So you have a very small. Mo- if you look at the the funding of DoD, I mean, obviously the bulk of it goes to the higher classification level. So if you want to, if you want to have the bulk of the market, you want to be able to touch that
0: as well. And how old is the Iron Bank? How long is this uh, so been we,
1: I think it's been nine months now. Um, oh, really? So, yeah. Uh, obviously, the first few months it was about automation, right? So, uh, not just about you know cranking containers in and hoping for the best. It was about automating the scanning piece. We created a tool that we open source, which I think is very exciting, which is uh, kind of a, a CV assessment tool where we can assess per layer the container. So so for example, Mm -hmm. let's say I have my UBI, right? Then you have OpenJDK on top of that. So I have my OpenJDK container. You have a Java app. You're gonna take my OpenJDK container. You inherit the findings of uh, UBI, which is really RHEL 708, and then you get OpenJDK. We approve that so you don't have to worry about these CVEs. And then I wanna know the delta, Mm -hmm. right? Of your container on top of that. And so the tool we built, the open source tool we built um, allows us to see the findings per layer and then approve, a uh, whitelist the, the CVEs in code and everything is configuration as code, uh, infrastructure as code. And, and so, it, in fact, I, I guess it's security as code, I don't know, but, um,
0: <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah. And, and new acronyms we, every day. Have, yeah, once we have, I guess, the the, 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 the CVE approved, then it's self-update. So as long as there's no new CVE, it's just completely automated, right? So we had to build all this logic of, of scanning and assessment and then, you know, it's multi eyes on code. So for a container to go through the process, there's, you know, three set of eyes on my team until me, I'm the final approver of container. I review every, every container until until they approved the first time. And so that is um, really a lot of, lot of eyes to make sure, you know, we're not missing. I can tell you, we found stuff that uh, teams of large, big, big open source uh, projects and commercial companies Pretty famous ones that everybody, pretty much everybody uses today. That you know we're marked as false positives uh, for sometimes five, six, seven years, and uh, you know we're mm. getting away with it. And it was not a false positive, and, and until my team, um, you know, put eyes on this stuff, uh, and then we we told them to fix it. And within fifteen days, right, they they had the fixes. Uh, but that tells you, right, that you don't don't just trust, right, the the, the list of CVEs marked uh, you know false positives right that's just too easy.
0: So the the hardening piece for the iron bank, it that's something that I think the the, the government will be really good at. And and looking at what the EC council is doing, it, it makes sense why you're able to get that high level of talent to be doing such a crucial piece of the infrastructure for the government. I'm curious on. It seems like in my conversations with enterprises, the hardest thing today is to find a true DevOps engineer. Um, and a true one, not just somebody who has the title because they've done you know, a boot camp. Um, how do you guys go about that attracting talent who, who actually has real world Kubernetes expertise and who is a true DevOps engineer?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there is two pieces to that, right? One is you want to attract talent and then you want to build them, right? Uh, we mm-hmm. have hundred thousand people. I have to train this year alone on DevSecOps. Hundred thousand people, right? <laughs> so that, wow. that tells you a little bit of the scale of DoD, right? And so we're building dojos and you know training curriculums and all based on commercial content. We're not, we not, you know we partner with the Linux Foundation, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, or writing the books. And first, you know, I can tell you that the foundational piece to any team's success is about continuous learning because you can get the best talent, but if it becomes stale. You know, in the organization, because he's is so busy doing the day-to-day stuff that he cannot learn, he's going to get behind too. So you can get the best guy uh, uh, six months later, is worthless, right? So you want to enable uh, that confused learning, and so we bring, um, you know, this com- content and un- unbiased content because it's important. It's not locked into Red Hat or VMware or whoever, right? It's it's really open to the to the community. Vendor agnostic. Or- yeah, vendor agnostic, right? And, um, and then, you know, we, we we give an hour a day to our people to, to keep up, right? Or catch up sometimes. <laughs> First catch up mm-hmm. and then keep up, right? Um, and, and really that, that goes into stuff like service meshes and, you know, uh, how to move a monolithic application to microservices and architecture. And it's a big gap. I don't think it's just DevSecOps engineers, right? or, or site will engineers for ops. It's also the architects, right? How to design your app so it's agnostic, it's not locked in, you're not locked into a cloud provider, you're not locked into a product, you're, you know, agile. Um, for us, we have to run anywhere from, you know, a jet, a bomber, space systems, nuclear systems to, you know, and we run Kubernetes on those things, right? People don't even realize the, the complexity of that, right? Um, but that's what we do. So one is, you know, the, that, that learning piece, right? So once you bring them in, at least they don't become stale. Two, of course, attracting talent well. You know, the mission resonate obviously, with a lot of people, although we don't pay as well. <laughs> but we, we uh, yeah, that's, that's what it is. But, uh, you know, you're not going to also uh, get your hands on a jet with Kubernetes every day, right, um, on the commercial yes. side. So I think there are, you know, there's a few companies like SpaceX, you know, that does that pretty cool stuff, right? Uh, but there's not a lot of companies that have the cool toys, uh, right, that we have. So I think we, we obviously get talent because of that mission, plus the mission, right, The the country, um, you know, for me, it's funny because when I started uh, two years ago, I, I didn't have kids, right? And so now I have uh, three kids because I got twins, which was not planned the plan, wow. uh, <laughs> in time of two at once. And then yeah. I had I my daughter only two months after I, I started. And so I have three kids now, right? Uh, and I can tell you, right, the, uh, my, my obviously life changes, that's, that's obvious. But more importantly, you realize that what you're doing now will define the success for your kids to compete with other countries you know, for the next 20, 30 years. Um, some of the projects we're doing now is replacing the nuclear silos and missiles uh, on the ground uh, that were in use for you know, 50, 60, 70, you know, 60 years for the next 70 years and we have nine years to do it. You don't you don't really find that kind of work everywhere. So, and it's, you know, it's a deterrent, right? The, the, the people forget, but the goal is never to use them, right? Um, but it, for them to be there if we need them, and, and more importantly, for them to deter, right? Um, other nations to have bad ideas, right? Yeah. And so we, we need to really think of that, right? Um, and, and, and I think people that, that, you know, that have that mindset Want to come and make a difference because now you, you're not you're not doing DOD obsolete you know fifty years old things that you know will get you behind as an individual when you come out you are you, not going to be relevant you're doing the the top best you know cubase mo- most advanced club native things um, so so you really improve I would say we for once we, we're not behind we I would say we're leading. Um, I might be biased, but I would say we're leading, uh, when I compare, you know, when I, because I talk to, you know, CIOs and CTOs across the commercial side and, and I see where, where people are in terms of adoption of, I mean, we're not on Netflix, but we're not, you know, we're not 20 years behind. So I think that that helps attracting talent. Of course, the pay is still an issue and, you know, contractors can be paid more. And I think we do pretty well. It's much harder to be a government employee. Right. Um, but, but, mm-hmm. you know, you can just be a contractor and sell services to the government and, and most of our technical people end up contractors right because i mean we do need government people because they're supposed to be the oversight where right? they're supposed to know what's going on and make sure that we're not wasting taxpayer money and we're not spending like you said you know getting vendor locked into to a single company or product we need to really uh, pay attention to that as government people that's our job to uh, to do right by the taxpayer, and I think of it as my own money anyway. When I, you know, when I spend government money, you know, being uh, an entrepreneur for the last twenty years with, you know, funding, I, I know the importance of, of money, and I, I don't think of it as no. oh, that's just you know taxpayer money, we're just gonna spend it. No, we, we have to spend it wisely and and efficiently, and I think we do that, right? We, we demonstrate we saved, you know, millions billions, in fact, would be already, and we saved a hundred year of time moving to DevSecOps in one year. So you can imagine the all the work that was planned for the next, uh, you know, several parts. So we have 37 programs that moved last year to DevSecOps, now 60, um, The just last year, the 37 saved a hundred years of time, right? Moving to DevSecOps.
0: And that's funny you bring up a hundred years of time when, you, when you're talking about the nuclear silos, I'm wondering, you know, the technology you guys are replacing in there must be archaic. <laughs> You know, it must be before the web, right?
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's 60, 70 years old uh, tech, right? Uh, World War II, you know, uh, I mean, you're really looking at uh, things that are, yeah. Uh, And and, and honestly, you know, there's a debate as as far as how uh, new you want to be, right? Because nuclear surety and, you know, you want to be, you don't want to be hacked. I mean, but but at the same time, you want to, but you also want to build something that's going to last 70 years right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that stuff is expensive, right? It's, uh, it's probably the, one of the largest uh, DOD engagement uh, that we have across, across the department. So, um, you know, uh, th- that's something to, to keep in mind, right? Um, because um, uh, you don't want to just go to the, to the safety. Uh, obviously, we want to be safe, right? And, and it's, it's a foundational piece, particularly for nuclear systems, but then, you know, you look at jets, right? We decouple the air flight control piece, right? From the rest of the software where we can bring AI machine learning and new capabilities, sensors, and different things that can do things that don't impact, right? The, the jet. And, and now you can innovate faster there and, and leave the, uh, the flight control piece alone, right? That's not something that needs to, to be updated often. Right.
0: mm mm-hmm. yeah, And, and, You've mentioned jets a couple times. I, I saw the article on the, the U two is that's is that, a bomber.
1: Yeah, that's a jet. Yeah, that's a jet.
0: Um, uh, so it's a jet. you guys are doing more than you guys are doing that, that. That was just kind of the tip of the spear.
1: Oh, we do a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. We can't even talk about, but we, we uh, we do all the jets, all the bombers, all the, you know, all the space stuff, everything is, is going to move to these, um, kind of Lego blocks containers, right? Where we can, re- and, and think of the benefit of it, right? You have jets that have similar sensors capability, even, even by the way, beyond Air Force, right? You have uh, ships and, and submarines and, and, and different mm-hmm. things that, that have the same sensor, right? Why would you need to rebuild the, 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 the software piece of that sensor? What you do with a sensor might be a different outcome, but the gathering of data, right, coming from the sensor and translation and into something that can be processed by by software, that, that software piece is just, you know, should be a container, right? And then you well, can just swap it around.
0: And that's that's the purpose of containers, right? The ephemeral nature to being able to pull out, delete, spin up a yep. new version. And um, scale,
1: and yeah. And, and, and more importantly, right, the, the modularity, right? So you can, if you swap sensors, so let's say I have a better sensor on a ship right, or on a jet, you don't want to swap the entire software of the jet, right, you just want mm-hmm. to swap that one sensor piece and, you know, yep. remove the sensor, put a new sensor, and, uh, you know, replace the container, and you're good to go, right, and that's the modularity we need, so now you can create systems by combining uh, Lego blocks in a different way, right, just that's mm-hmm. the whole concept of Legos, right, um, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's it, exactly, yeah, um, I'm curious, the all the systems that are running Kubernetes um, are, and that will likely be running it in the next five years. Um, how do you guys manage the infrastructure behind that? So I imagine there's, there's you know, allies across the world that, that have access to these systems. Um, is, this, is this all in you know, the, the federal side of the public cloud? Is this um, you know, individual data centers in, in global locations? How does how's the infrastructure look that's, that's running all of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're running everywhere from uh, you know, um, government clouds and classified clouds all the way to on-premise, um, on bases. And I mean, you even run on the jet, right? Uh, so yep. so yep. Yeah. Uh, edge, edge, edge use cases, IOT, right? Um, and, and so when we built the stack and that's why we picked Kubernetes, right? We wanted to be able to be agnostic of the infrastructure so we can run anywhere. Whether it's on vSphere, whether it's on you know a backpack hardware that's uh, you know can go up to 150 degrees Fahrenheit of of temperature, right? Uh, all the way to uh, on-prem data center that you just uh, rack and and connect uh, you know uh, hardware cluster or, or horizontally to grow your compute, storage, CPU, GPU, whatever, right? And so we have you know we have this very um, modular hardware uh, capability, and and of course the the the, the cloud where, you know, of, of course you benefit from the elasticity of the cloud and, and we use both Amazon and Azure right now, uh, but we also have on-prem, I guess, vSphere, you know, instantiations as well.
0: And, and being a, a Kubernetes guy, you didn't mention Google. Uh, what, what's the motivation behind <laughs> that? Because <laughs> I mean, every, every company that I've, I've ever heard that's looking into Google or that is using Google that was prompted because, because of, of Kubernetes. Kubernetes.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we would love to use them all. The issues they don't have a classified cloud, and they don't have, uh, really the the even the the, the highest classification we need. And so, you know, if you start using the cool stuff, and, and then you, you cannot really bring it uh, without the drift and disparity on the on the what we call the high side, which is the classified environments. Then it doesn't really bring a lot of value because you know you're gonna you're gonna have the cool stuff on the unclass side and then you, you go you go to the high side and you you're back to something else it just doesn't make sense right you want to be able to um, to just run uh, the same stack across all classification level and just so you realize the complexity of that right uh, to to compare with a commercial company that just has you know maybe a dev test staging pod environments right uh, not only we have that but we have that times five six seven we you know we have multiple classification level it's not you know it's multiple yeah. classification levels so you end up having let's say 25 to 35 environments so, so if, if you're gonna have drifts and you're gonna update vms and, and and you're gonna run you know GitLab or whatever as a as a, as a vm that stuff is gonna drift across uh, classification levels and you're gonna you're gonna end up you know with a lot of issues of disparity and now you cannot trust your tests you, know, you, you could have issues in, in efficacy um, cyber issues because you know, you're, you're, you're still on one side and the other side is, is latest diversion, right? So that's why you know, we use moving target defense. We, we can kill containers every four hours. We can push them automatically, right? That, that or, or alone, even if there is no update, no that reduces the ability of a bad actor to laterally move across the stack, right? And then you add zero trust and you, you add the behavior detection. So if a bad actor types commands uh, to try to get into uh, uh, some other container, you know, that's going to be detected as a behavior drift. So we have all these layers of security as well. So, uh, but that tells you the complexity right, of um, the cyber stack and, and then the duplication of the stack across classification levels. And keep in mind, a lot of these are air-gapped. <laughs> so yeah. um, that, that, that adds a little bit of complexity on top of that.
0: So being that it's air gap being that you also these these application, I would assume, have some type of relationship with things that aren't air gapped. Um, how do you, number one, how do you, wh- what do you use to visualize right Prometheus being and Grafana being the kind of the standard of visualization for yep. Kubernetes. We'll and, and, and uh it's, you know, I guess, do you guys just how do you have like a, do you have an enterprise relationship with them or are you just using the open source no, we just
1: frameworks use uh, yeah open source version although we, we do have uh, elastic as well uh, the paid version and the free version both both of them so we we log first with efk um and then you know we have uh, alerting and uh, um dashboard uh, capabilities with kibana and, and prometheus but we don't do it yet across environment on the single uh, stack because then you would have to have the highest clearance to connect to that thing, and and uh, you know it also creates a lot of risk to to centralize all the logs in the same place, right? So we, we do it per cluster, and, and then we we aggregate per classification level, right? So that way, if you if you only have a secret clearance, you don't wanna you don't wanna you know you want to be able to see what's going on, right? You don't want to have to go to a top secret environment if you don't have a clearance. And what do you do? Um, and we don't want to do make that mistake of uh, of pushing to the highest. Class. It's, it would be easier for us to say we're just going to do code uh, at the TSSCI level, right? The the one of the highest you know, classification level. But then everyone everyone would have to have the highest class, you know, clearance, and yeah. that takes yeah. you know twelve to eighteen months, sometimes to, uh, or more, to get a clearance. Well, so then and for a hundred thousand people,
0: for a hundred thousand
1: <laughs> people. And by by way, the way, hundred thousand is the people we have now, right? Um back to the, your point of uh, attracting new talent right a lot of these people would come from the commercial side with zero clearance right and so mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. not going to happen overnight so if you add that that clearance um uh, which you know the ic and many teams have as a, as a big impediment to their success uh that that obviously creates a lot of a lot of issues to bring new talent in and they have to wait by the way for months unpaid uh to get started Right. Mm-hmm. So they would stay in their job more likely. Right. And then they leave and, and then they come once a clearance is granted, but, but that, that is just not the way we do it. Right. We, we, we start at the lowest classification level and then we push up. In fact, when you move to microservices and, and containers, there is less need to classify a piece of code because it's, it's so small now that only the aggregate, right. Of things can become classified and the way you end up using it with, and, and the data is often what's classified, not so much the software, right? So by cutting it smaller in, in microservice bytes and then um, having fake data, right? You can do a lot on class.
0: And, and now how do you establish like those hard isolation boundaries with with such a variant of, of who has authority to access certain things? Um, where where are the, the isolation boundaries that you create between whether it be environments or applications?
1: Yeah. We 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 have layers. So we, we think of it as first the infrastructure layers that would be the cloud on-prem. Then you add on top of that the platform layer that would be Kubernetes, then you add the, the CI CD pipeline layer that would be all the tools containerized, right? To and, and who needs access to what tool. And then we have the service mesh layer which brings the east and west traffic management between containers. Mm-hmm. And then you have the application layer, which whatever that application is doing, because they always have, you know, all back as well. Um, and we use zero trust. So, um, you know, we, um, we whitelist, you know, access based on the device state and who, has access, who is supposed to have access, right? Uh, and your role in the organization. So we end up having a single sign on stack that will, uh, based on the device you're using, so if you're on mobile, if you're on a personal device, a government device um, uh, to bring your device or not, right? And then based on who you are and your identity, and we use, you know, uh, multi-factor authentication uh, with the token, right? Uh, if you authenticate it and your device is safe, so it's passing the patch, the patch you know, check and endpoint uh, protection MDM, if you're using bring on device, if, if that passes, then you're whitelisted access. If, if let's say your device is not patched for 15 days, maybe we still let you see some stuff, but you don't see the, the, the Chrome jewels, right? So you can whitelist based on device state and user identity resources to the system uh, based on the combined risk of the user and the device.
0: And and does that require patching into a VPC or or is all? Yeah. It, or is it, I mean, it, would it be possible for a contractor to access that through, you know, once, once they've done their single sign-on and that token has been yeah, validated yeah. and passed back?
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's completely accessible from internet, right? at least for the end-class stuff, not the classified stuff. The classified stuff, you have to be mm. in a classified building and, you know, you, you're Got back it. to uh, the, the dark ages bunker. Um, although we do have, for the first time ever, some uh, secret access from home. Uh, so secret networks, not mm. top secret, but secret, uh, secret networks from home. Um, but most of the stuff in class, you know, you could connect from home um, and you could have either a contractor device or, or a government device and authenticate and, and access. And uh, we use AppGate, which is a, a, a zero trust tool that will whitelist the cloud resources based on the device data and the user. And then we can uh, whitelist that access and and the single sign on as, you know, we use Keycloak, which is, you know, open source to do SAML, OAuth, OpenID, you know, whatever. And Mm. then that that whitelist access to all back, you know, uh, groups and, and then based on the group you have access to, then you get access to the applications behind them
0: let's let's dig into service mesh um, working at nginx I mean I, I I was talking with enterprises two three years ago about service mesh and you know now talking to them today it seems like very little's changed in in that deployment and I think the biggest Not for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the, the, the biggest, I think the biggest issue that I've seen is the the the, the goal of a service mesh is to make things simpler for, for Kubernetes and microservices, um, but yep. it often makes things a lot more complex. And you might have this whole uh, team of experts in Kubernetes that now have to become an expert in a service mesh. So why, why yep. was the service mesh important for you? Um, what, what were the, the key things that you were looking to use it for? And then talk to me about like, what service mesh you guys have have standardized on or looked into, and and why?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna tell you tell you something very bold. I'm gonna tell you that uh, you cannot succeed building microservice applications at any kind of scale, decent scale, without a service mesh today. It's 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 literally impossible. Uh, and the reason why I say it is because if you don't use a service mesh and you use multiple programming, particularly if you want to use the benefit of microservices and using the best tool to get the job done, which means you need to be able to um, have different programming languages, different databases, right? Based on what you're trying to build. And so you might end up with five, six, 10 different programming languages being used across the organization. And so you don't wanna have to coordinate releases, right? I I issued a memo highly discouraging the use of safe and all these uh, complex agile uh, frameworks because they, they have these release planning events and the coordination of releases. That's anti-agile, anti- agile, um, anti-concept of, of microservices. So the point of microservices mm-hmm. is to be able to release each microservice independently without tight coupling, without having to coordinate releases. If you if you have to coordinate releases, you're you're failing, right? As a business,
0: so, <laughs> that's a monolith.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so um, if you if you have the you know if you have uh, authentication, if you have load balancing routing, service discovery, encryption, mutual TLS tunneling, particularly when you start doing zero trust with your service mesh, which which is really primary what we wanted to use it for at first, which is the the service mesh will act as a a reverse proxy to whitelist access to resources and create these certificates to do that authentication and mutual TLS tunneling. If you're gonna do all that and you're not gonna use a service mesh, you're gonna have to share libraries between teams. And oh, mm-hmm. you need to update the TLS the encryption because there is a zero day. Now you have to recompile and rebuild all these um, uh, dependencies and and rebuild your, your microservices. If it's a sidecar container, like we do with a service mesh, you, you can update independently your service mesh without touching your containers. And so you're decoupled and you have all these capabilities, all these things you can do uh, for writing load balancing, service discovery, and I mean, uh, all the telemetry and all the, you know, um, uh, benefit of, of tracing and, and all that kind of stuff that's done as a service mesh. Now that can be, uh, you know, used uh, in a decouple fashion from your from your containers. And you can release at the pace that you want. Yes, you're going to need to build a service mesh team, by the way. Uh, and we have a service mesh and you need a team that's going to be doing the IAC, the, the, the configuration as code. So if, if uh, team A Uh, has a container that wants to talk to team B. Uh, For us, everything is change management in code, right? So the the policy to do the whitelisting is code. Everything is code. So the policy to whitelist the traffic will be code that maybe team A initiates, team B has to approve it. And then you have the service mesh team that will approve and the merge requests. And once the merge request is is approved, then it's triggered using, uh, we use Argo CD and Flux, Flux will apply the change to Kubernetes by pulling from Git. So it's a pull, not a push, um, which means the, the CIC tool does not have access to production or staging. Yep. So now yep. you have a full GitOps mindset. You have yes, you have a separate team and but but look building a team for an enterprise for a service mesh with a few experts is gonna that's gonna streamline so much of your east and west traffic management, log telemetry, uh, cyber, you know that's where you can inject That's how we inject all of uh, the the cyber stack uh, as a cycle container. We call it the cycle uh, secret stack, right? Mm. Um, So once people understand the benefit of the cycle and that you can inject, and it's not running as an agent inside the container. So if the container is compromised, the agent is worth less because the first thing they're gonna do is tamper with that agent. But if it's a cycle, it's running alongside, so you still see what's going on even if the container is compromised, right? So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of benefit all, all over the place. And, and really, the simple fact that you decoupled is enough to justify using it. And, and, and it's foolish to think there's no complexity without a service mesh. That complexity is now transferred into the application, right? Um, so the complexity is still there. It is more tightly coupled to the application microservices.
0: In your opinion, I mean, it, it sounds like you've come in and you've made this a, a very high priority. That to to get to the the moving left or to, to getting into a you know more modern architecture for for your application environment. Do you see this as a, a, a must-have for an enterprise? And 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 the reason I ask is, I feel like there. My my perspective is. This is really important for the government. This is really important for the Ubers and the Lyfts. I'm wondering if it's important for, you know, uh, Joe's insurance company who who services a thousand people in Mobile, Alabama. You know, it, do you see it being pertinent, in, whether it's today or in the future, for even the most granular of an application infrastructure? Or not granular, but well,
1: smaller. look, I think there is probably a size where it's overkill. Right, and and hopefully that will be sold as a service by the big Google providers, which already do it with uh, Anthos or you know, whatever pick your choice of, of a provider that brings both, you know, with OpenShift, the service mesh and the, the stack is an easy, easier implementation with some looking sometimes, so you have to be careful, but maybe as a small business, you don't care. Um, and you probably want to want to have that flexibility. Um, but I would say if anything meaning anything that's really dependent on that software and, and, and it's meaningful and it's a core cool piece of your business, right? It's not just an enabler because you're, you're mowing the lawn of you know people and you need some software to track you know your billing, uh, that's probably overkill. But, but if it's if it's your business, right, you probably want to have full understanding of that. And I get it, right? For smaller companies, it's going to be harder. But quite honestly, you know, when I put my, my investor hat back, right, I used to invest in stuff, I would, I would take companies based on their maturity level uh, of their DevSecOps teams more so than the quality of their product today, but more about their ability to keep up with the competition, right? So I would say all the stuff we're talking about here is foundational to the medium long-term success of our organization, right? Uh, I don't think you can move at the pace of relevance if you don't have these things. You're going to get behind. Um, so that's just that's what it is, right? It's an investment that's going to be required to then be able to build what's what's on top. So my take is if I predict the future, there's going to be companies uh, focused on becoming the platform one of, of commercial uh, companies where uh, you can go to you know, whatever that company name will be and get access to a DevSecOps stack with a service mesh and a team managing that for you uh, on a cloud provider of your choice, and and focus on building your software. But you will still be paying, whether it's a cloud provider or a company, right? Be paying to get that service turnkey, not just hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna have uh, you know Kubernetes as a service, but but a full service mesh and the full management mm-hmm. and day two operation of that yep. as well, not just the, the installation of it.
0: Now, uh, I mean, you brought up a lot of good points, right? The, the, the day two piece is something I think that a lot of people are, are fighting with today and then looking into a vendor to try to offload that work for their internal team. Uh, it seems like organizations have gone to the fringe of, of adopting new technologies and then realizing now we have to support all this. This isn't something that, uh, you know, we, we spent all this time building and now we have to maintain it. What's your approach to that? Um, and and I mean, you, you mentioned the the constant reiteration of training for your internal teams. Do you take that same approach with supporting your infrastructure, or do you look to vendors to help maintain day two operations?
1: Well, you know, I think um, day two is probably the biggest challenge of all organizations out there, right? Um, it, it is it is very difficult to scale day two operations, particularly when you, de- you deal with hybrid clouds and you also deal with use cases and stuff like that. The, the talent, you know, site reliability Engineer is still a very uh, recent title and, and not well understood set of skills.
0: And when you add, <laughs> mm-hmm. you
1: know, like you said, the service mesh and all this stuff, you end up having a lot of people involved to, to figure this out um but you know it's foundational to your business right uh, and particularly the cyber piece of that right it's not just hey day two my uh, my stack is is running is how do you update it how do you treat your your entire stack as cattle not just your container but your entire cluster your entire uh service mesh, everything as cattle so you can it down and bring it back up with no downtime uh do uh you know a b testing and and uh, uh, modern routing and all the stuff you need to to try things out with your customers, right? And do incremental uh, tiny changes that they barely notice, but brings you insight as, as far as the quality of your product and the ideas you have, uh, whether or not they make sense or not. So the, the day two piece is probably the biggest struggle. Uh, I like, you know, the, the new name of Mesosphere, you know, with day two IQ, right? Um, mm-hmm. Day two IQ, which, which really, Uh, tells me that they understand that the the future state of uh, of Kubernetes is not obviously going to be about day one it's going to be who's going to be able to bring the best day two experience uh, for organizations out there and my expectation is you're going to see companies trying to now be able to support uh, different Kubernetes distribution, because that's the thing too, right? We don't use one distro, right? We have we have OpenShift, we have VMware, we have D2IQ, we have Rancher, we have, you know, some people look at uh, AKS, EKS, whatever, right? The, and then 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 often the, the companies themselves refuse to support, very few companies at least refuse to support other distros, right? Yep. So like uh, OpenShift won't support VMware. And, and so, so now you have what? You're going to have to have dedicated day two people per, type mm. of cluster you're running, right? That's mm-hmm. that's insane, right? But, but for an organization like DoD, we're big enough to, to have to have different options, right? And so getting those tenants trained and, and so that's where some companies come in and be like, well, you know, I'm fine uh, supporting any distro. And in fact, I'm gonna build uh, tools and information around that uh, both, you know, using the cluster API or monitoring tools to uh, federate or just uh, monitor you know, uh, tool, those clusters across, across distros. What, I'm, what is obviously the most concerning behavior that I see from particularly the big Kubernetes, Kubernetes distribution out there is that they are becoming this massive fat monolithic distributions one-size-fits-all, uh, highly opinionated where yep. you are forced to use every little piece of their things. If you want to swap container registry or service mesh by another mesh, it's like at the end of the world. But that's mm-hmm. the reason why Kubernetes was so successful. It's a modularity, flexibility, API driven, you know, uh, ability to change things. The minute these companies are pushing this one size fits all which is happening right now. And the minute they yep. don't understand and I told that to all of their CEOs, right? uh so i have already uh, alerted them i'm not sure they got to listen but at least they they know my opinion that they're gonna kill the market they might kill kubernetes because they're gonna they're gonna transform it into that ugly um opinionated thing where the, the whole point was not to be that right so
0: mm-hmm. that, that's a great point i i now at a kubernetes management company and and my ceo shares the same opinion you have Having a, a distro agnostic approach to Kubernetes is is vital. To your point, right? You, you I mean, I, I talk to organizations every day that have OpenShift on prem, doing EKS, looking at AKS. Obviously, GKE is now becoming you know a real thing, and they're trying to wrap their heads around how do they how do they support that, and then how do they support the day two operations piece of it, upgrading these clusters right. that are all you know. Um, so that, and then the the highly opinionated piece, I think, is to to your point. It defeats the purpose of Kubernetes. What's yep. the point yep. of of taking an opinionated approach on something that was designed to be ephemeral and and fluid with the times? So, um, I know we're we're getting close to time. The one question I did have that I didn't ask earlier, from uh, an investor perspective, um, how much do you think? Uh, because you know, you know, you're seeing all these hearings with you know, from Zuckerberg and and Dorsey and uh, people asking them questions like they don't know anything about what's going on in in the world of, of technology. How how pertinent do you think, or how how uh, how enlightened are is Wall Street to Kubernetes, and how do you see to the view that you have on on that being a vital piece of what you invest in being reflected in Wall Street.
1: Yeah, and it's not just Kubernetes, right? It's a whole Deaf SECOPS, um yeah, 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 culture, yeah. maturity, but yeah. Um, and service Smash and uh, all the stuff around it. Um, it depends, right? I see a lot of VCs that pay attention and even some VCs dedicated in in and focused on finding the next big investment around that 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 uh, landscape. Uh, I would say those will probably be the most successful VCs out there. Um, some dismiss it as, you know, uh, a commodity and just a support supporting function, and I think they're they're foundationally wrong uh, because they don't really understand how important it is as an enabler to success, right? And, mm-hmm. and the timing and the timeliness piece of adoption, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, particularly when you build IT products, right? If, you, if your product today is not containerized, not running with Kubernetes, and I'm not sure you have any any future if you don't yeah. immediately stop everything you're doing and stop saying, oh, we have this legacy thing and have customers. And if you want to be the Kodak of uh, you know of software, you, you can think this way, but you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, we, we have customers, we, we're going to look at Kubernetes down the road. I still see it from a few companies that are like, yeah, we don't have a container yet, right? <laughs> and he's in up planning for 2022. I'm Like, what, yeah. what, what, what do you live in? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, even DoD doesn't think this way, right? That that's scary mm-hmm. when you you you're moving slower than DoD. Um, so yeah. yeah, so I would say you know the, the one that really um, get it will will make more money and get better return on investment. So if if you're if you're a limited partner and you, you're picking VC investments, you probably want to ask that question and see how much they understand of the DevSecOps take up scene before. Uh, giving your money to to some vc
0: i think i think out of out of this hour of this the, the listeners have that key takeaway from this that if you're moving slower than the dod then you you know you got something going on wrong right now um
1: and, and I really Doody, appreciate you know, what it. i and what i always say sorry that I meant to cut you off but what i always say is if duty can do it and we're doing it on weapon systems and the systems we have to deal with there's very little excuse for any company out there not to be as leaning as, as what we're doing, right? So that's the other side of this too.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. And and I feel like I could chat with you for another few hours talking about <laughs> the, the things that aren't even pertinent to, to the last two years of your life, um, starting with you know the work you did and, and being one of the youngest entrepreneurs in France. Um, but maybe we got to table that one for another date.
1: We can always do another session another time. <laughs>
0: yeah. Happy to Well, do it. great to meet you, man. I uh, really appreciate your time. Love, yeah, uh, love, love the perspective. And I'm glad that my my taxpayer money is going into something like this. So,
1: yes, yeah, you, you can feel better at night.
0: Yeah, exactly. All righty, man.
1: <laughs> thanks so much. You, you have a good you bet. rest of your day. Thanks. Thank you. Take care.